This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, addiction expert Gabor Mate is joined in conversation by CIIS Dean of Alumni Richard Boogs to discuss his groundbreaking work on trauma and the mind-body connection. This event was recorded on March 8, 2019 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. It's also where you can find out more about us, including how to sponsor future episodes of the show. First off, thank you so much for joining us this evening. It's nice to be in sunny yeah. California. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, but also thank you for your vision and your compassion and all the wisdom through your writing and through your lectures. It's helping so many people heal. So thank you thank for you. that. Uh, many here tonight and those uh, listening to the podcast uh, have been following you for years and are very familiar with your work. But for those who are less familiar, uh, could we begin with some personal history and talk a little bit about your interest in medicine and how you got started with the healing arts? How did I get interested in medicine? Yeah. Well, there's two answers to that. Um, One is what I thought, and then what was really going on. Um, Or I should say it's a combination of both. I always grew up wanting to be a doctor, never wanted to be anything else. And... uh, never had any idea of being anything else. Uh, although I did work as a high school teacher for a while, that's because, in retrospect, my ADD kept me from studying hard enough to be a physician. But I eventually went back to it. Um, I could say I always wanted to help people, I always wanted to make a difference. I was quite aware of human suffering. It also happens that my grandfather, who was killed in Auschwitz, was a physician. And... Um, in retrospect, at least unconsciously, I'd rather think I was trying to fill his place in my mother's life. So that would be the unconscious part. Then there is... You just can't, but, can't help but realize as a doctor you'll be fairly well financially secure, which for a refugee kid from Eastern Europe was a consideration. So what I'm trying to say is that all decisions that we make in life are... Uh, combination of many factors, some of them hidden. I could mention one more that has certainly shown up in my life, which is the need to be needed uh, out of a a deep sense of not being good enough. And if you don't think you're good enough and you're not sure that you want it, go to medical school. (laughs) So uh, it's a professional secret, but it explains a lot about medicine. So is that a clear enough answer? Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Could you say a little bit about um, Happy International Women's Day, by the way, for everybody out there? Today is International Women's Day. Could you say a little bit about this? Could you say a little bit about your mother? My mother. <clears throat> well, let me just make a couple of points about International Women's Day. I don't know if this is generally realized, but great movements 
were often started by women. I'm talking about great political movements that have changed history. The French Revolution was begun with a march of women in Paris. The Russian Revolution, ditto with their march of women in um, either Moscow or, or perhaps uh, uh, St. Petrograd, St. Petersburg. Um, so it's not a trivial thing, International Women's Day. It, it, and, it, and, it's, and in North America, in, in the, uh, one of the first things that the British did in Canada was they very deliberately reversed the matrilineal transmission of, of tradition and power uh, amongst the First Nations people, because it was matrilineal. The men, the chiefs, were not in charge. It was actually the wisdom of the women that was in charge. So, the, International Women's Day is, is more than just a recognition of, of, of women. Um, today, it, it's actually a deep historical tradition that the patriarchy has been fighting against for a long time. Now, in terms of my mother, um, it was her 100th birthday yesterday. She was born 100 years ago yesterday in, um, in a city called Košice in, in southern Slovakia or a city called Kasha in northern Hungary, depending on who the place belonged to at which historical time. So she was actually born in, uh, in Slovakia, but 20 years later, the place was taken over by Hungary by a very anti-Semitic regime that was an ally of uh, Germany in the Second World War. And so as a young mother, she had a very hard time. And um, my wife and I visited uh, this place in uh, Budapest, just a few months ago, it's called the Glass House, and it's a museum now, at least there's a room in the house that's a museum, but the place used to be a glass factory before the Second World War. And during the Second World War, it served um, as a place under the nominal protection of the Swiss embassy, so that Jews in their thousands crowded into this place that was designed for a hundred people. And she took me in there for minimal protection from the fascists. And two days later, she realized that I would die if she kept me there. And she went to the street and she gave me to a complete stranger to get me out of that place. And I didn't see her for six weeks. Some of you have read my books will know the story. But I was in Budapest five years ago again. And... Um, I actually took part in an ayahuasca ceremony in, in Hungary, if you can believe it. And, uh, I mean, where else? And, uh, <laughs> and I was lying there in the Hungarian um, countryside looking at the Hungarian stars and uh, this event, the, the separation from my mom that has done so much to introduce dysfunction and pain and rage and, and issues in my life, at least that evening, I experienced it as a tremendous act of love. I mean, imagine a 24-year-old young woman giving away a one-year-old baby. 
not knowing if she'll ever see him again. And what an incredible act of bravery and love that was. And, and it also struck me that, that um, what an act of love. He was on the part of that stranger to take me. In fact, on the part of the whole universe. So I'm not always aware of that love, and I, I certainly don't always act as if I was aware of it, as my family can tell you. But that was my mom. You know, that's, she was capable of doing that. Thank you. Uh, one of the things that you write about in Scattered, and you're, you're so uh, revealing and open with your struggles, and it's, it's beautiful to see how mm. you use your own life experience, especially as a, a parent as well. And you talk about, in Scattered, about ADHD mm-hmm. um, not being something that's inherited, not being a disease. This is sort of why I was asking about your mom to kind of set that up for yeah. what you must have experienced as this young two-month-old baby as the Nazis are coming into Budapest, which she yeah. must have been experiencing. Well, so if I were to write that book today, that was my first book. Uh, and if I were to write it today, I would write it somewhat differently. I mean, not all that differently, but when I wrote the book, I still thought of ADHD as kind of a thing, you know, like, like you got this... I didn't, I didn't see it as a disease, but it was a, an entity. And now I no longer see anything as an entity. I see everything as a process. So it's a dynamic process. It's not just this thing that you've got. I've got ADD, so there's ADD and I have it. Or for that matter, there's multiple sclerosis and I have it. It's something that I have. There's an I and there's that thing and I have that thing. Um, I'm much more aware of the so-called diseases. Well, you know, the, the things that we call diseases are not things, they're processes. And the same thing with ADHD. And it did occur to me very quickly in the game that we're not talking about a disease here. Um, The whole disease model is false, not just when it comes to ADD, but virtually everything, and certainly what we call mental illness as well. And what's really going on is some kind of an adaptation to the environment. So under the conditions of being a Jewish infant under Nazi occupation, you can imagine the stress that um, my mother was under. And when the mother's under stress, the infant is under stress. It's just that simple. And how does an infant brain deal with stress? An infant who cannot change the situation, cannot leave the situation, their brain has a limited um, repertoire of resources with which to respond to overwhelming stress like that. Let me pause to say that we know, for example, here in the United States that children who are stressed are much more likely to have asthma. And uh, in polluted areas where stress is, I'm sorry, where um, asthma is obviously more prevalent because of the pollutants in the air, it's still the parents of kids who are most stressed, or sorry, the, the, the kids of parents who are most stressed who are most likely to have the asthma. And that's for the simple reason, is that children 
simply experience the stresses of their parents, especially infants do. So you can imagine the stress my mother was under with her parents being deported to Auschwitz and my father being in forced labor and, and the war. And you can just imagine. So how does an infant deal with that stress? Well, one way is to scatter your attention, just not to be present. And so the, being present is often difficult for me. It has been. And ADHD really, again, it was a, doing an ayahuasca ceremony. I was working with an ayahuascaro, a, a curandero, who, you know, ch who pours the drink and, and, and he chants and so on. And we had somebody in the tent with intense ADD, and my curandero colleague comes to me and says, during the night, and says, hey, I just got what ADD is all about. He said, it's a fear of the present moment. It's an intense fear of the present moment. You just, mind wants to be somewhere else all the time because the present moment was so hurtful to you. When? When your brain was developing. So when we talk about, I know I'm giving you a longer answer than maybe a question implies, but when we talk about brain diseases in psychiatry, and we live in the days of biological psychiatry where everything is a biological problem, yes. And where did that biology come from? That biology is shaped by the earliest experiences that the infant has, which is not even controversial. But I just said to you, scientifically is not controversial. It's just how it is. So, yes, my brain was wired to tune out at a very early age. And you go on in your uh, second book to talk about... Uh uh, it has a great title, Hold On to Your Kids, yeah. uh, co-written with uh, Gordon Newfield. Gordon Newfield, yeah. And one of the things that struck me is that you uh, are encouraging parents to get the first three years right. Yeah. as a very important part, maybe, of uh, the, the fact yeah. that they're absorbing so much from their environment. This is about why the first three years are so important. And Gordon, by the way, Gordon Newfield, it's co-written with them, but really it's his work. And Gordon... Um, as I keep telling everybody, is simply, and I say this very advisedly, uh, he's simply the world's greatest developmental psychologist. Um, not nearly as well known. I mean, he's known internationally. He travels all over the place, but he ought to be a lot better known, except he didn't spend his time writing academic papers. He spent it developing programs for parents and kids so that kids can develop properly. So his name is Gordon Neufeld, and uh, this book, which maybe we'll talk about more, is really his baby. I happened to be the midwife for it because he just couldn't quite get it together to write it, so I wrote it with him and for him. But in terms of the first three years, if I can find the quote I'm looking for, this is an article that appeared in the journal Pediatrics in January of 2012. Now, this is what's so startling about this information, is that it's published in major medical journals, and it sinks without a stone, it sinks without uh, a trace uh, in, uh, in terms of medical practice. So it's not like what I'm saying here is controversial. It's just, um, it's just doesn't have an impact. 
And, and so what they point out in this article, and I'm afraid uh, it's too small for some reason the way it's showing up, so I'll cite it for you because I've quoted it long enough or often enough. So in this article from the Harvard Center on the Developing Child, you couldn't get a more prestigious source for a scientific publication than the Harvard Center on the Developing Child. In the journal of pediatrics, which is the official journal of the American Pediatric Academy, so you couldn't get more mm, authoritative a source than that. And what they say is that the brain develops, um, the development of the brain uh, begins before birth and continues into adulthood. And during this period, and, and in the early years is established the basis for all the health, learning, and behavior that follow. Those early years is the template for all the birth, for all the health, um, behavior, learning that follow. Now notice what it says, it begins before birth. So that already the emotional states of the pregnant woman has an impact on the future mental health of that adult who at that time is in the womb. So I could talk a lot more about that, but that's just established fact. Then they say that the, it's the interactions of genes and experiences that shape the development of the brain. We're talking about the brain circuits, the presence of um, substances in the brain like the endorphins and serotonin and oxytocin necessary for relationships, um, dopamine necessary for incentive, attention and motivation. And these circuits develop an interaction um, of the genes and the environment and is critically influenced by the mutual responsiveness of adult-child relationships, particularly in the early childhood years. Which means to say that the most important influence on the development of the physiology of the brain is the quality of parent-child relationship in the early years. And now if you look at the question of why this epidemic of childhood disorders on this continent. Mind you, not just only this continent. As globalization spreads, America is importing its mental illnesses to the rest of the world as well. And uh, that's been well documented. And, um, or the so-called mental illnesses. So why, why so many kids on medications for ADHD? Why so many kids on medications for mood disorders? why the impulse regulation problems, the conduct disorders, the so-called oppositional defined disorder, which doesn't even exist, let alone um, should be treated in kids. Um, but what, what, what the autism spectrum problems, why so many more kids diagnosed with autism, well, what could be going on? What cannot be going on is any kind of a genetic process because genes don't change in a population in a decade or three decades or even 10 decades. It's got to be something in the environment. And given the crucial importance of the mutual responsiveness of adult-child relationships to the development of the brain, what's going on is the children in this society are not getting the necessary conditions for their brain development. And that's not because parents don't love them. It's not because parents are any less devoted or, or, or committed than parents ever were. It's because parents are so stressed and the relationships that children need are no longer available to them. And now we say that they have these biological brain problems that we have to be, uh, fix either with medications 
or behavioral approaches. So either we medicate kids or we try and change their behaviors instead of saying, well, what is behind the behaviors? And what's behind the behaviors is developmental conditions that no longer serve human needs. And you talk about uh, the, how the real relationship of a parent with a child doesn't depend on words. Yeah. And it's, a, it's more of a sheer state of being. And you admit that you had trouble with that with your own kids. I did. Uh, I was, because I had uh, tremendous insecurities, I, I was a workaholic doctor. Gave me a sense of importance, being valued, being wanted. Um, also, it took my mind off my internal depression and anxiety. So when I was in my role, uh, I could feel really good about myself. And um, my wife's in the audience. I'm not giving away too many secrets. When I, when I tell you that um, we always marry somebody, we always find somebody to be in relationship with exactly at the same level of emotional development and trauma resolution as we are. So the marriage ceremony is, when we say for better or worse, we mean, will you live with my trauma if I live with yours? That's what we're saying. Wedding season is coming. so And, and you're a couples right therapist, so you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, that also means that, that traumas get, in a good marriage, in a, in a marriage that's going to succeed, the traumas are mutually worked out. But when those traumas are being worked out or, or, or manifested when the kids are small, guess who inherits the problems? And we transmit it. If we don't transmute it, we transmit it. And a lot of people, we don't get to transmute it before we transmit it. And what was that process like, like for you and your wife around the whole essential needs of the newborn with attachment and authenticity and... I just want to understand that question again. Say it again. What was it like for you and your wife as you had these newborn children and the whole process that you talk about regarding attachment and authenticity as being essential needs You know, of the I, newborn? I think in this question, I'm sensing that there's two different topics. And so I don't want to... I can talk about attachment and authenticity, or I can talk about what it was like for my wife and I, but they're two separate issues. Okay. Okay? You can pick. Except in this sense that this is a, a dynamic that I've seen quite often and is very prevalent in this society, that when children are born, see, uh, unless the couple are mature when they get together, they still have immature attachment needs. And so that, to a certain extent, the, the, the woman is looking for a daddy and, 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 and the... I'm talking in a heterosexual couple now, but the same dynamics I'm sure play out in all kinds of couples. But to speak of the heterosexual couple, um, the, the man is very often looking to have his mothering needs met by the, by the wife, by the woman. But something happens for women uh, when the babies are born, which is now their mothering energy needs to be directed towards the little baby, not the big baby. <laughs> and uh, the big baby doesn't always receive that very well. And so couples tend to get into trouble and difficulty. And then a woman sometimes has a decision to make that, 
whose needs I'm going to meet. Because if she tries to meet the needs of both, the infant loses out. And she loses out. Hence, postpartum depression, for example. Is a, is, is a postpartum depression is not a disease of the woman. It's a manifestation of the relationship and of the environment. And so, authenticity, if, 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 if the woman, in this case, was really in touch with her feelings and, got, and, and, and respected herself and was strong enough herself, she would say to the man, I'm sorry, I can't do it. You either grow up or go away. But of course, in this society, that capacity to be in touch with our gut feelings and, and, and to know what we need, which is what I call by authenticity, which is what I mean by authenticity, is often not available to us. So there was some of that dynamic in our relationship. And in retrospect, we've been married 50 years this year, by the way. Uh, and we, and uh, our, our line, uh, thank you. <laughs> if you really knew what it was like, you'd be applauding much louder. Okay. <laughs> um, and when I'm asked if I'm married, I said, yeah, I've been married eight times to the same woman, you know, because it's been through that many phases. And there were times when it might have been better in retrospect, we agree, if she had said thanks but no thanks, not right now, not the way you're showing up. That would have been a healthy thing to do. Because one of the things that you talk about in the realm of hunger growth is this whole thing that happens around addiction being related to the trauma of a, yeah. an emotionally empty childhood. Yeah. And how many kids come from those homes where the parents haven't figured out a way to fit together and give the kids those kinds of uh, states of being that you describe. Yeah. Um, Gordon, my developmental psychologist friend, talks about children's children have to be satiated. They have to be satiated with acceptance and love and um, the sheer pleasure that their parents take in their existence. These are needs of children. They're not luxuries, they're needs. And the parents, we can talk about the adverse childhood experiences studies and all the, uh, you, know, you just appointed a new um, Surgeon General in, 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 in California, Nathan Burke Harris, who was a physician who's very aware of childhood adversity and, and, and trauma and its impacts. But you don't have to go to those extreme traumas for children's need to be, needs to be unmet. It's enough that the parents are too stretched and uh, too busy to satiate the child with, with the presence and with the acceptance and with the attunement that the child needs. And when that child is not satiated, there's an emptiness inside. And that emptiness has to be filled somehow. And addiction is one way to, to fill that emptiness. Hence the title of my addiction book, Hungry Ghosts, that hunger inside, that, that emptiness that's inside. Really, that, that's always about a lack of... Um, you can say it's trauma, and often it is, and the more severe the addiction, the more likely the person was deeply traumatized in the very ob obvious ways. But it's enough... 
that the love wasn't there the way it needed to be there. Not that it wasn't there, but that it wasn't there the way it needed to be there. Because of what you say, that the parents just couldn't be who they needed to be for that child. In the time we live in now with, with so much uh, gadgets and pads and I mean so many things now that take kids away from interaction and <laughs> for the yes. people at home on the podcast he just put his computer down <laughs> well I mean in our book Hold On To Your Kids the last two chapters about the digital age and uh, the first of all here's what Gordon says and I'm now channeling my friend Gordon he says that And he's not the first one or the only one to say so, but attachment is the most important dynamic as human life, in human life, our, our, our attachment to other human beings. And there's a very simple reason for that, that without attachment, and attachment, what is attachment? It's um, a, a gravitational force that pulls two bodies together, just like gravitation does in real life. So attachment is an emotional gravitational force that pulls two bodies together. And it has a necessary reason for existing. It, it, it's, it's an ineluctable law of life. Because without attachment, there's no life. So that attachment is this drive that pulls two bodies together for the purpose of being taken care of or for the purpose of taking care of the other. That's the primary role of attachment. And without it, human life, as you can see, for obvious reasons, is impossible. The infant is utterly helpless. So, um, Gordon starts with that premise. And that means that until our attachment needs are met, if they're not met, we're going to bend all our efforts and energies to have those attachments need met. So, if you go back to my medical school issue and, and, and my work addiction, that being wanted is an attachment need. So when I and many of my colleagues become workaholic physicians, it's not out of the love of the work. Because you can love the work without being workaholic. It's not out of dedication to humanity because you can be dedicated to humanity without being unconsciously a workaholic. It's about trying to, trying to have an attachment need met. That of being wanted. Now, in a world that desperately deprives children of their, of their authentic attachment needs, anything that kids get their hands on will be used to fill those attachment needs artificially. So the technology, the gadgetry, is beautiful. It's not beautiful how it functions, it's not beautiful that it's made by lowly, poorly paid um, laborers in Asia. That's not beautiful. But the technology itself is beautiful. But in a society and in the hands of people whose attachment needs are desperately lacking, everything will be used to meet the attachment needs because that's the primary need of human beings. So guess what? The technology, instead of being used for what it's meant to be used for, which is the exchange of information and authentic contact, now is bent towards the purpose of meeting attachment needs. 
Hence, you have Facebook. On Facebook, people have what? They have friends. What's that? That's an attachment need. On Facebook, people like each other. You know? What's that? That's the substitution for being loved. So, you know, it's really, imp- you know, and as far as information, it's trivial. I mean, you're in San Francisco and you're at Pete's Cafe and you take a picture of your muffin and then you <laughs> send it out to your hundred friends. It's really important that they get a picture of your muffin. And then 50 people will like your muffin and maybe three people will not like your muffin. And then you have to spend the whole day wondering why didn't they like my muffin, you know? But then you can unfriend them. <laughs> and you can unfriend them, that's right. Yeah. So, so the reason it's so powerful is not because of the technology, but because of the unmet attachment needs. Now, it's also very addictive. Screens are addictive. Screens... Um, also, we do, if you, more screens you watch, the more your dopamine levels go down in your brain, so then the more you need the stimulation. So there's all kinds of reasons, but the primary problem here is an attachment problem. So maybe you could say something about the, all the different addictions and how people f- try to fill up that space, yeah. uh, besides drugs and alcohol, but so many things that sure. people turn and, to. And that's the other thing here. The conversation around addiction is always about drugs which is ridiculous. So I'm going to give you a definition of addiction. Um, Then we'll take a poll here, okay? Uh, An addiction is manifested in any behavior that a person finds temporary pleasure or relief in and therefore craves, but suffers negative consequences as a result of and doesn't give up or cannot give up or denies despite the negative consequences. So to put it simply, Pleasure, relief, craving, short-term. Negative consequence in the long-term, inability to give it up. That's what an addiction is. Now, notice I said nothing about substances. Of course it could be drugs. Alcohol, nicotine, caffeine, heroin, crystal meth. Could also be sex. Could be gambling. Could be shopping. Could be eating. Could be purging, as in bulimia. Could be self-cutting. Could be um, a pornography. Um, could be the inter- could be the internet. Could be work, of course. Could be political power. Any of these things. So let me just ask you a simple question. According to that definition, how many in this room would acknowledge that sometime or other in their lives they've had an addiction problem? Just raise your hand. Well, that's how frequent. That's how common addictions are. Okay, so the whole conversation on addiction as being all about drugs is really um, an artifact of social denial. It's just a denial of reality. That's what it is. You spent a lot of years working at the East Side Clinic in Vancouver. Well, it, so the Vancouver has got this area called the Downtown East Side, which is um, maybe a ten-block square radius, in which there are. Th- thousands of people injecting and selling and buying and all the activities around drugs. And, uh, of course, it's an area where there was a high rate of HIV, hepatitis C, all manner of mental illnesses and so on. So that's where I worked for 12 years. 
It seems like in, in your discussions with the various people that you met, uh, you, you learned so much about the trauma that had happened in their lives, some of it way back as really young children, almost to the point they couldn't remember. And, and you talk about the adverse uh, childhood experiences and the link, right. and the link to uh, addiction of any sort. Right. So the people I worked with, it's really at the extreme end of the traumatized amongst our society. So in 12 years of work, as I've often said, I, had, I didn't have a single female patient who had not been sexually abused as a child. Many of the men had suffered sexual trauma, physical trauma, neglect, abuse, incredible stories. I mean, you wouldn't believe them. There's two things that were salient about their experience. One is they never connected those experiences to their addictions. They just thought they were bad people, stupid people for being addicted. But the fact that they were soothing their trauma never occurred to them until I suggested to them that there might be a link here. You know, um, that's the fir- that was the cer- first salient fact. The second filiac- salient fact was that nobody ever asked them about them before, which is astonishing. <laughs> which brings me to the adverse childhood experiences studies. I'll tell you two stories about that. Many of you must have heard about them by now. The ACE studies, which were done right here in California. The adverse childhood experiences studies. An adverse childhood experience is uh, physical, sexual, emotional abuse, a parent dying, a parent being jailed, a parent having an addiction problem, a parent having a mental health problem, violence in the family, um, a divorce. Uh, I mentioned nine. I think there's a tenth one. And what was found here in California was that for each of these childhood adverse experiences, ACEs, the risk of addiction goes up exponentially. The risk of obesity goes up exponentially. In fact, the studies were begun after the physicians working in an obesity clinic found that they could help people lose weight, but they couldn't help them keep it off. And then they asked the patients, what's going on? They said, don't you get it? We're stuffing down our pain with the food. Then they did, the, Dr. Vincent Felitti, the, uh, he's the chief investigator. He lives in San Diego, a wonderful internal medicine specialist. They did these AC studies and came up with these findings, not just for addiction, but guess what? Also for attention problems, psychosis, depression, sexually transmitted disease, autoimmune disease, and eventually even malignancy. So the more of these adverse childhood experiences, the greater risk of all this stuff, and specifically for addictions. Well, let me tell you two stories about the adverse childhood experiences studies that'll show, that'll illustrate what the problem is in this culture. One is, these studies were done in the context of the Kaiser Permanente healthcare system, which, as many of you would know, is a large healthcare corporation and the, the studies were done at, uh, through the Kaiser Permanente system <laughs> in San Diego. Six, seven years ago, I got an invitation to speak to Kaiser Permanente addiction clinicians about addiction. They were impressed with my work eight years ago, maybe seven years ago. I said, sure, I'm happy to come and speak to them. But a month before I was scheduled to fly down here, 
they called me and they said, well, do you have any documentation about your perspective? And I said, yes. There's the adverse childhood experience studies done in Kaiser Permanente. They were delighted to find out. <laughs> they didn't know. And when I got down there, by the time I spoke there, about 50% of the clinicians had heard about the adverse childhood experience studies. This is in the city where they were originated, in the organization. Which is, talk about denial, talk about lack of receptors for certain kind of information. I'll tell you another story. I was in Norway uh, in November this last year, speaking at a conference. Also at the conference were two very prominent American clinicians. One of them is a psychiatrist who helped to write one of the most recent editions of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. If I mentioned his name, some of you would know it for sure. The other name, some of you would also know, particularly if you're a therapist, is very big, very high up, very accomplished in the cognitive behavioral therapy field. So before, I had, before the conference, we had dinner, some of the presenters at the conference, and I asked one of these two people where they lived, and they said, San Diego. I said, oh, you must know Vince Valeri. And they said, no, who's that? I said, oh, he's just the lead investigator of the most important studies ever done, the adverse childhood experiences studies. And they both said, what are those? Oh, what are you going to say? <laughs> this is a no, pregnant pause for the say? podcast. You, know, I mean, you, you have to really ask, what's yeah. going on in yeah. this culture? What's going on in this culture? That on the one hand, you have these... Now, those studies have only been published in about 150 different uh, journals and repeated in Canada, in, in Europe, and elsewhere, always coming up with exactly the same conclusions. But somehow, there is... A, and, and, and the reason that so many of you are here tonight, for me to say the obvious, is because the culture denies the obvious. I mean, when you look at all the studies, that, this, this brain research study that I just cited, or the brain research information that was summed up in this article that I quoted, and the adverse childhood experiences studies, and all the studies that we're doing, brain scans and heart rate and, and monitoring uh, heart rate variability and stress hormone levels and all these great studies that we're doing, and, you know, what are we finding out? This is, don't tell anybody this. But all we're finding out is that if you treat people well, they're going to be okay. <laughs> and if you don't treat them so well, they're not going to be okay, especially when they're young and vulnerable. And we keep having to prove the obvious. So there was a study that was published three weeks ago. You know what they found out? Grandmothers are good for grandchildren. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> but you've got to get a PhD for something. <laughs> of course, you have a PhD. Yep. No, nothing personally meant here. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody said uh, PhD piled high deeper. <laughs> oh, okay. 
So, you know, the New York Times this past week uh, reported that drug deaths from alcohol, drugs, and suicide. Say it again. Uh, deaths yeah. from alcohol, drugs, and suicide in 2017 hit the highest level since collection started in 1999 right. with 150,000 people, just twice as many hmm. as previously. But it seems to me that we still blame the addicts or we have medicalized the problem instead of looking at it relationally. Well, so basically in our society, we categorize problems in, in two ways. They're either choices that people make, in other words, the behavior problems, in which case we just try and change the behaviors. And we try and change the behaviors in children by basically um, rewarding the good behaviors or punishing what we consider the bad behaviors. So already at age two, uh, children are being punished for the way they behave, in fact, even before then. Because it's a behavior problem. We just want them to change the behavior. And of course, the behavioral model arose out of rat experiments. If in a laboratory um, you want to change the rat's behavior, it's very simple. You reward him for behaving the way you want him to. And you punish them for behaving the way you don't want them to. You punish them by shocking their foot with electricity or some in, in by, uh, visiting some other torment on them you don't really care about how the rat feels about it. And you don't really care about the rat's development into a healthy creature. You just want to change the behaviors. But that's the model that a lot of parents are educated in in this culture. And that's the model a lot of the schools follow. So that's one model. And then you get the psychological um, manifestations of that in, in, a, in a more... Um, compassionate way by therapies that are fundamentally behaviorally focused. So cognitive behavioral therapy is a big deal right now. Not so much about what are the dynamics driving the behavior, but how do we change the behaviors? Now, with adults, if you don't like the way they behave, and particularly if Arbitrarily, we've decided that certain subs it's okay to kill yourself with alcohol, but it's not okay to use heroin. I mean, I don't know what this... There's no rationale for that, because it's much healthier to use heroin than alcohol, by the way. Not that I'm advocating anybody does. <laughs> All I'm saying is that if you, if you use heroin in a moderate... When I say moderate, non-lethal um, dose, several times a day, you can actually function, go to work, and you can have a life. And if you have a thousand people who use heroin in that way versus a thousand people who smoke heavily versus a thousand people who drink heavily, guess which group is going to be much healthier 20 years later? It's going to be the heroin group. I know that's heretical to say that. I'm just giving you a medical fact. So arbitrarily, we've decided that those people are criminals. It's a totally arbitrary thing. But if they behave in that way, then we punish them. And at age two, what do you do with a kid uh, along, to, along behavioral lines, if that's what you're after? If they behave in ways you don't want them to, you give them a timeout, which is you deprive them of love for a certain period of time. What do you do with adults? You also give them a timeout, and you put them in a building, and you call that a prison. Now they got a timeout, maybe for 20 years. because. And I was in San Quentin a week ago, tonight actually, um, speaking to and with some prisoners on addiction 
And there are people there, there's still people there who are in jail because of the three strikes Jen you out. They didn't hurt anybody because of this behavioral punitive model. Now, the other model that we have in this society uh, about behaviors that are what we call off the norm. By the way, I want to be excited about my next book. It, I haven't written it yet, but it will be published in 2021. I just want to tell you the title. The title is The Myth of Normal, Illness and Health and an Insane Culture. Okay? Now, what, um, what we do in our society is, is we have this mythology of the normal and then behaviors that fall outside the normal, we call them pathologies. We call them diseases. So then we have the behavior model of addiction or we have the disease model of addiction, according to which addiction is this brain disease, primary brain disease that largely is inherited. So that's the model that we have. And neither of those models, of course, look at what is the function of the addiction in the person's life. So let me ask this question here. From this, and I'll just take people in the front row so I can actually hear you. So virtually everybody put their hands up. When I asked, have you an addiction, according to this definition I gave you, many people put their hands up, almost anybody, hardly anybody didn't put their hand up. Those of you that are within shouting distance, anybody want to tell me, I don't care what you're addicted to or when, they don't have to tell us anything like that, just what did you get from it? What did you like about it in the short term? Anybody would tell me? Yeah. Sorry? Control. Okay. Somebody said escape. Somebody said a sense of control. Anything else? Excitement? Connection. So control. Um, what was the second one? There was um, relief from pain. Connection. Okay. But just, I'll take one more. Attention. Now look at them all. Anything wrong with any of them? These are things you all want. Connection, control, attention. Relief from pain. This is what this is the human needs. Let's not talk about the disease. The addiction is not a disease. It's an attempt to solve a problem. The problem is that with seven billion human beings on earth, you felt disconnected. The problem is that with your God given capacities and strengths and talents, you didn't have a sense of agency, control in your life. The problem is that you had too much pain that you needed relief from. And, then, and, and if we want to understand why you had those problems, what do we have to look at? Your genes? Your life. And so both the disease model, let alone the... Now, the disease model is far more compassionate and helpful because at least you're not blaming somebody for having a brain disease. At least you're not blaming somebody for having inherited the wrong genes. And at least you're going to offer treatment. And when they relapse, theoretically at least, you're not going to blame them, although that's not how it works in practice. But at least according to the model, you won't blame people any more than you'd blame them for having a relapse of any other illness. But in neither case are you looking at the actual function and the source of the addiction in the people's lives, which is that something happened to them that, that deprived them of some essential human qualities that they then want the addiction to replace. It's really that simple. 
It seems like an example of that child that you just spoke of that was given a time out for misbehaving or something at a time when the child most needs connection, the child is deprived of that. That's exactly the point. See, when a two-year-old who throws a temper tantrum, their, their brain is um, in turmoil. They have high stress hormone levels. They need regulation. They need holding. That's when they need the there's an American, there's a Canadian psychologist, no longer alive, who, who who wrote a book called Time in Parenting, and he was saying that it's that's when children need the, the the time in, and that's what Gordon says as well. And so the teaching is when the child most requires your presence and your love and your understanding, that's when you deprive them of it. Well, what's the impact on brain development of that? What's the impact on the child's sense of self? It also seems that parents have a difficult time helping their children learn about anxiety. Anxiety? Anxiety. It's like parents get anxious and and do things that the kids can feel it. They can feel the transmission of that state. Like I saw um, a child's ball went out to the street and the father was just completely terrorized because there was a a car coming. He was really freaked out by it. And he grabbed the kid and just spanked the kid instead of... Because he was very anxious, clearly. I mean, he was really upset by this. So so the parent is anxious. The parent... The kid didn't know what happened. Well, that's exactly what happens, is that the, the, the parent, for his own or her own historical reasons, her own childhood reasons, can't handle the child's emotions. And um, if you can't handle your child's emotions, there's two things you can do. One is you can deal with the fact that for some reason you can't handle your child's emotions, you can get help. Or you can try and suppress the emotion in the child. Or act out your own anxiety and anger on the child. Well, if you can't handle the child's emotions, what message will the child get? Is that they're not acceptable for who they are. Now they have to be somebody else. And they lose a connection with themselves for the sake of maintaining their relationship. And this is what you were citing when you talked about attachment versus authenticity. So that when I have to suppress my own emotions because... I'm afraid that if I express them, I'm going to lose the attachment to relationship without which I can't live. And if I'm two years old, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to suppress myself every time. Which will show up 20 years or 30 or 40 or 50 years later as mental illness or physical illness. And on, um, I just gave a four, five-day course or, or workshop at Multiversity in Santa Cruz. And one night, um, I had as my guest uh, Dr. James Doty. And Doty is a neurosurgeon, a very adept and prominent neurosurgeon, who also wrote a book called uh, Into the Magic Shop. It's an interesting and worthwhile read. And it was actually a surprise to me and a delight to me that in my public conversation in front of our group with with Jim Doty, he said that the the commonest source of human illness is disconnection from the self. That's what I've been believing for a long time now. But it was so surprising and affirming to hear it from a neurosurgeon. And the reason he knew that is because he'd been through his own stuff. 
So what I'm saying is that when we force children to disconnect from themselves early on, we invite the presence of what we later call dysfunction or pathology. Seems like in a lot of the couples that I work with, there seems to be some difficulty either being in touch with anger or expressing anger. And I, I believe it stems from this time, too, where kids are not allowed to, uh, or modeled how to express anger in a healthy way, as if that's an emotion that needs to be suppressed or repressed. Well, the repression of anger is simply the commonest dynamic underneath virtually all autoimmune disease, as far as I'm concerned, and much malignancy as well, and that's just not my opinion. There's lots of research on that. And let me tell you something, what, come back to women again. Women are much more likely to have autoimmune illness than men are. That's not a biological fact. It's, it's not a result of biological variables. It's a result of the fact that women are much less likely to be encouraged to express their anger in a healthy way. And uh, that's why they're so much more prone for autoimmune disease. And uh, I'll tell you another interesting fact. In the 1930s, 40s, the gender ratio of multiple sclerosis, which is an autoimmune condition of the nervous system, was about one-to-one. -one. In Canada, it was a one-to-one. -one. In the States, I think it was very close to that as well. You know what it is now? It's three and a half women for every man. Now, what explains that? Well, the only thing that can explain it is the increased st stress load on women. There's no other explanation. And yet, this is a question I often ask. It's rather rhetorical, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, men or women here in this audience, doesn't matter. How many have been to a, a cardiologist, rheumatologist, immunologist, gastroenterologist, dermatologist, any kind of an ologist in the last five years? Just raise your hand. Terrific. Okay, thank you. Now raise your hand again if they ask you about your childhood stresses. Raise your hand if they ask you how, about how you feel about yourself as a human being. Raise your hand if they ask you about your relationship with your spouse. One, two people. How about your relationship work to work stress? Did they ask you about that? A few more. That's how pitiful it is. Like on the one hand, we have all this evidence. I mean, I, on this computer, I have thousands of studies about this stuff. It's easily available. But there's such a disconnect. There's such a disconnect. On your website, you have this wonderful new program. Is it called Compassionate Curiosity? or Compassionate Inquiry. Inquiry, where you try to help people engage in the practice of finding the truth. Yeah, Compassionate Inquiry is simply... Um, Well, here's the deal. So in Vancouver, I was working. We have a good public health care system in Canada that, you know, um, is it legal to talk about public health care in this country? <laughs> in the Bay Area, you're yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they haven't criminalized it yet. That's good. To know. But so that means that when it comes to gynecological care or family practice or, or you know, or, or 
any kind of specialist care. It's all covered by the public system. But, but psychologists and counselors are not. Now, as, when I was working as the family physician, I, I began to notice, couldn't help but notice, all these connections that I've been talking about tonight between trauma, childhood experience, emotional factors, physical illness, and all this stuff. And that means that when people came in with any kind of a problem, very often they needed some listening to, needed them talking to. And so I wanted to refer them. But of course, within the medical system, I could only refer them to medical specialists and who are the designated medical specialists to deal with the emotional issues? Psychiatrists. The only problem is, for the most part, and with honorable exceptions, psychiatrists are not trained to, do with, trained to deal with that stuff. They have this biological view of disease, and here's the pill, and thank you, see you in two weeks, or four, four weeks, whenever. And the patients in the area of town that I was working with couldn't afford uh, the private psychologists and counselors. So I decided, well, I have to do it. So I basically developed an approach and that approach is what's now called compassionate inquiry, which is really about helping people drill down, ask themselves compassionately, what's actually happening? Why do I feel the way I feel? Why do I behave the way I be? Why do I react the way I react? And so on. So this is a method that we teach to therapists and those that are interested. We, you can go to my website. We teach it online. There's an online course. You can, you can, and we'll also make a, pub, a version available for the public uh, just for people that want to do the work with themselves for a much lower price, which will be available sometimes this June. But there was that workshop that I was giving in, in Santa Cruz this week, Compassionate Inquiry. It's just about the capacity to be curious about everything about yourself, not with judging yourself, and realizing this article from Harvard that I quoted, again, I won't look for it because it, the print is too small right now on the screen, but they say that scientific growing evidence has demonstrated that adaptations that children make to stressful circumstances in the early years are helpful in helping them survive that early distress, and those same adaptations, those same psychological and physiological adaptations become uh, threats to health and even longevity later on. The way that we adapt to our early environment can help us endure that early environment, but it becomes a source of pathology later on. I've already given two examples of that. One is ADHD. It's just an adaptation. When the environment is stressful, the child tunes out. When does he tune out? When his brain is being developed. So the, program no, so the brain now is in default tune-out mode much of the time. But it just began as a defense against stress. You talked about anger being suppressed. Well, what's another word for when you're doing this, when you're pushing something down? What's another word for that? To depress, right? Guess what depression is? It starts as an adaptation. When, when you can't express your emotions because your parents, as you were questioning earlier, are not able to handle your emotions because they can't handle their own, then in order to adapt to their environment, you're going to push down your feelings. By the way, not that you're going to do it consciously. You're not doing it. Your system has this beautiful wisdom in it. 
that says, okay, kid, if you're not allowed to feel, don't feel. So you push down the feelings unconsciously. Later on, you get depression. So that all, everything begins as an adaptation. And so the compassion and curiosity is just all about looking at any part of you, any behavior in your part, whether you like it, whether you don't like it, whether other people like it, whether they don't like it. What's the source of it? And you've got almost anything that you don't like about yourself at some point defended you, protected you, helped you survive. And if you're compassionate with yourself or with your clients, that can be revealed very quickly. So that's what that's about. Well, thank you so much. I, uh, someplace along the line in one of the interviews, uh, they described you as a people whisperer. Yeah. And I really understand why yeah. having this time well, with you. you. Thank you thank so you. much. Yeah. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast.